Hey Camp Kids, welcome back to the Camp Kids Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Bob, and I'm on a mission to bring together a community of camp people from all around the world. Whether you are currently in your camp experience or it's been a while since you've been at camp, when you're with us, you're at home. Today I'm wrapping up my lifeguarding experiences this year. To give you a bit of a background though, I'm going to start from the very first time that I was certified as a lifeguard. The first time that I was actually certified through the American Red Cross for lifeguarding was in 2014. So this was kind of on a whim. This summer I was hired as a program specialist and I actually wasn't hired to lifeguard. I was hired to manage more of the high ropes and the archery side of high adventure. But they were doing an all call for guards and this was about the point in my resident camp experience where I started realizing that the other program areas don't run unless other people get certified to do them. And especially for if you work for the Girl Scouts or some other non-for-profit organizations that don't necessarily hire a bunch of people to do these, they rely on maybe one or two lifeguards to work there full-time and then really manage other unit counselors that also have this certification. I just wanted to be very well-rounded. So I did something that made me super scared and did this lifeguarding certification. Now to give you a background about my swimming experience, I was never on swim team or anything like that. I did take swimming lessons for a very, very, very long time, starting at the age of three, pretty much continuing all the way to like fourth, fifth grade. So I had known how to swim, but as you dive into the lifeguarding experience, you can use any stroke that you want when you're doing your swim, your lap swim. So it really wasn't that bad. The brick test though, oh my gosh, that was overwhelming the first time that I did it, especially in the pool where we were at because it was 12 feet. So that was a little intimidating, but obviously got it done with a bunch of other camp people. It was a really incredible experience. That was my first dip into lifeguarding. I first got certified in 2014. I kept getting my recertification every time that it came up until 2018, where I took an LGI course, that's Lifeguard Instructor course, through the American Red Cross. Essentially, it's like drinking from a fire hose all weekend long. And shout out to my friend Jace, who traveled down to Cape Girardeau with me from Springfield, Missouri, which was, you know, about a five hour drive, to be able to get this done all in one weekend. We were sore, we were tired, but, Wow, were we really excited to have this all done. So in 2018, I became an LGI and I taught one course during my tenure as an LGI. To give you an idea of how this course went, I had to do a little bit of recruiting for myself as well as certifying lifeguards for that upcoming season. I was also the camp director at this time. Looking back on my experience, I'm like, why did I decide that being an LGI and a camp director was a good idea? Regardless, we make choices in life. The first course that I ever taught was done with some research, some people who weren't involved with the Girl Scout organization or familiar with the outdoor pool and setup that we have, and other people who were going to be working there but had never done lifeguarding before. So it was a very unique mix of people. It went really, really, really well. We split it up over you know five days or so and did it in the afternoons. But the first time that we ended up doing the brick test, I had to go in and make a save. So I'll always remember that course for for that as well. That was even a person who had been a lifeguard before. I just swallowed some water in the wrong 
wrong pipe and needed some assistance. So it wasn't anything serious by any means. However, it was a good reminder that even lifeguards need help sometimes. The water always has a little bit of risk. But anyway, that's my backgrounding experience on lifeguarding. I want to now dive into this season. So I pretty much hung up my lifeguarding hat in 2018. I didn't I didn't work at any other pools. I didn't work at any other facilities in lifeguarding. And I kind of let it expire until this summer in 2023. So I took a little bit of a break. I also went from working from two different facilities. And there was a lot of things that I noticed that made my lifeguarding experience really enjoyable coming back to it. So the first thing I will mention is that in my previous facilities, we were required to get bridge to waterfront because we had stream access and we also had lake access. So we needed to have those skills. So the lifeguarding certification at that point in time was just a little bit more strenuous and a little bit more time consuming. This time when I did my recertification, it was just for pool and I think water parks, since we do have some sprinklers and stuff as well. And we did a hybrid course. So the majority of the book work came from being online, the blended learning course, and then we did our skills in person. And they were just so flexible. There was like one night where I had an after-school event that I had to be at, and they were so flexible. They stayed with me later one night to be able to get those skills in check. So the way that it has progressed has been really, really nice. Also, when I got recertified again, we had two LGI around. So it was really nice to be able to have multiple perspectives, people in there for research who knew the facility. It was just run really, really, really well. Things that I took away that were really cool in my life learning experience this season. Well, to give you background, if you're not familiar with my current camp experience right now, I do teach year round, which means my summers are not available to work full time. So the majority of my life grading experience happened on the weekends. And even then, it doesn't mean that I was booked every Saturday and every Sunday at the pool. There were some times when I would do zip line or I would have a weekend off or anything. So I really only got to experience life grading probably a good handful of times. But the differences that I had from in this experience and others, I really wanted to point out that really made it shine for me. The first thing that was really awesome was our bosses provided us with free lifeguarding stuff. It was a requirement that you were wearing red and you were able to be shown as a lifeguard and they made that possible by giving us hats and whistles and t-shirts and things like that so that we could identify ourselves. Now, I did go out of my way and purchase my own lifeguarding suit to make that a little bit more clear as well, but it was really nice on the first time that I had my shift to be able to go, oh my gosh, I have some free stuff to do. It was just a nice little extra bonus. Another thing that I really, really, really enjoyed was we always had one extra guard that was always scheduled. So there was always somebody in the office. Now, that is supposed to be like your break, but by no means was it actually a full-on break you could check out. There were always people that were needing assistance, maybe if there was a first aid situation that needed help, or there was toilet paper out of the bathroom, but you did get a chance to like cool off for a little bit. And these were usually kept in about 20 minute rotations. So you were never out on the pool deck for more than 40 minutes at a time. Coming from a resident camp experience where you might be the only guard on duty or you might have one you and another person, there's no breaks in that hour that you're swimming. You might get a 10 minute break in between each session, but by no means are you gonna get 20 whole minutes to go inside, go cool off, and then be rejuvenated to be able to go back out again. We also had access to a refrigerator and to an ice machine. And so every time that I was able to go back on the pool deck, I was always able to fill my water bottle full of ice, which really, really, really helped on those hot days. So those 20 minute rotations were really, really, really awesome. 
We also tested all of our swimmers. That's pretty typical for a resident camp or even a day camp scenario. This was really great. Now, I am kind of going to do an all call here because in our day camp scenario, we gave them wristbands, but they wouldn't always come back and show up with the wristbands. Now, later on during the summer, some of the parents and some of the guardians got really smart and started taking group pictures on the first day. That way, if they lost their wristband, we could zoom in on the picture and see, oh yeah, you had a green band. Here's your green band. So maybe that's just something moving forward we will do on the first day of a five-day day camp session is just taking a picture of the group. That way we've just got it documented and then uploading in one of our apps or something because that was just a lot of extra time wasted that I noticed was that when we would see kids two, three, four times in a week and they would lose their wristband and if the guard who tested them wasn't on duty, we would make them retest. It was not only frustrating for the participants but it was also frustrating for us too because we had to take away from their swim time to be able to do more retesting so i think moving forward i might suggest taking that picture just so that we got everybody in the right band we don't have to waste any time on more testing but i did like how we did test obviously there was a shallow water there was a deep water we also had a rock wall so there was extra things that you had to do to be able to do all of those different program areas. Now, when I went to Camp Robbinswald, a resident camp, we had canal access. So this was moving water. I was not able to lifeguard out there. I also didn't even participate in their in-service, their weekly in-service that they had. I really wish I could have. However, they had plenty of guards that they needed to make sure that they were really trained on this. Moving forward, I am gonna try and see if I can get my bridge to waterfront, my moving water in there so that I am able to participate in these extra lifeguarding experiences as well. So I wasn't able to experience it from a guard's perspective on the canal, but I was able to experience it from a lifeguard in the water. So there were two days when we were out there where the water was super duper duper choppy. The waves were really coming in hard and we, and the guards always kept asking these swimmers to swim closer to the dock, closer to the dock, closer to the dock, because the tide would kind of um, pull them out away from the dock as well. So that was some very unique things that you have to think about when you are guarding on an open seawater canal. So I thought that that was very interesting. I do have to say, I did have a lot of nerves going into this year being reasserted as a lifeguard again, since it had been since 2018, since I practiced these skills. But since 2018, I have been keeping up with my fitness pretty regularly. I've been lifting weights, I've been running, I've been doing other forms of cardio, yoga, stretching, mobility. And I think that because I was able to keep my muscles pretty active and because I have a foundation knowledge of swimming, I was able to dive back in no problem. So if you are considering going back into working part-time, volunteering, doing maybe a week or a sessional kind of like what I did this summer and you're needing to get some certifications again to be able to make that happen, but maybe you have some hesitancy of getting back into it, I'm here to tell you that you can absolutely do it. It may take you a little bit longer. Some things might have changed in the processes that you remember. However, if you set your mind to it, there's nothing that you can't do. So that's your call if you're wanting to get some extra certifications this year that you might have let expire. 
All right, camp kids, that was my season on lifeguarding this year since the lifeguarding season has pretty much wrapped up for most of us. If you like this episode, make sure that you like, share, and subscribe. We want to keep our camp kids community growing by spreading it to others who are also a part of the camp community. Please leave us a rating or review, preferably a five-star rating so that others can help find this podcast. Later on next week, I will be releasing another episode with my friend from the Silver on the Sage podcast. That's all that I have for you for now, but remember that this is good night and not goodbye. Testing, test, test, test. Hey, Camp Kids. Welcome back to the Camp Kids podcast. I'm your host, Joe Bob, and I'm on a mission to bring together a community of camp people from all around the world. Whether you are currently in your camp experience or it's been a while since you've been at camp, when you're with us, you're at home. Today, I'm going to walk you through a step-by-step version of how you can write your very own camp songs. Whether you are currently at camp or you are in the off-season preparing for your upcoming camp experience, I'm going to walk you through on how you can do that, even if you're not a musician. So, if you haven't been hanging out with me before and you haven't heard the story of how I got my ukulele, I'm going to kind of summarize it for you here because that was really the initial part of my songwriting experience. That was really the inaugural part of my songwriting experience. So when I was a program director, this was probably about my fifth summer of resident camp experience at this point. I decided one day on my two-hour break that I was going to run into town and go buy a ukulele. I remember it very distinctively. It was early in the morning. I had one of those early morning breaks. I ran into town as soon as the music store opened, and I went and I got a ukulele. I got the most expensive ukulele on the shelf, which looking back on it, I'm like, why did I buy the most expensive ukulele when I knew it was just going to be used for outside? Anyway, I'm super glad that I did today, but I went ahead. I got the ukulele, The guy was super kind. He was like, you're going to need a tuner to go with that. And I, of course, was getting ready to start my second senior year of college studying vocal music education. And I was like, oh, I think I can tune it by ear. And he was like, no, you're not. I know you're a great musician, but you're still going to need a tuner. And he went ahead and threw in the tuner for free. Anyway, I get back on camp just in time from when my break is over. And I go ahead and I sit underneath the first tree that's in the meadow at camp and I just start learning all these chords I I even went to the office to go print off like a tab sheet to go learn some chords it was super easy all of a sudden I started putting together some chord structures and that very first day I wrote my first song for those of those of you who have been a part of my camp experience at this point in time the song was I am a unicorn very simple song just like a four line song And the melody pretty much stays the same each of the four lines. So nothing spectacular by any means, but it was the first song that I ever wrote. And it all really started because I had the ukulele. Then all of a sudden we started writing songs for different parts of our camp, some things that were site specific, and we just started going wild with it. So for me, having the ukulele really started my creativity process. So if you are a musician or you want to become a musician, I would highly recommend picking up an instrument that is portable that you could use during your camp experience. This could be as simple as a kazoo. I recommend the ukulele because it's very accessible, very portable, and very easy for kids to learn. I teach my fifth graders how to play the ukulele in my music curriculum. They can pretty much be playing full songs by the end of seven weeks. So Ukuleles are great. Guitars are great. Uh, Keyboards, not so much, um, unless you want to do like a melodica. 
or a very small traveling keyboard, but anything that can really start to channel your inspiration is awesome. I mean, get a kazoo. Even something super simple is fun as well. So this first part is actually going to be for my non-musician friends. If you aren't wanting to pick up an instrument, you're more of just wanting to beef up your song selection or create some things that you can use in your specific camp experience, I recommend that you start with a chant or a spoken song. There's so many camp songs out there where you don't actually do any singing in them. They're not necessarily rapping, but they're just more of like a sing-song speechy type deal. You can absolutely do that. So a simple chant could be for when you're hiking on the trails or if you're trying to win an award or something along those lines. If you rhyme, it totally works. So that's where I would start. I would then go ahead and add lyrics to a pre-existing song. So if you're wanting to start dabbling in the melodic area, you're wanting to actually use some singing, go ahead and find a pre-existing camp song that you already use and add lyrics to it. You add maybe a third verse or a fourth verse, or you change up the chorus the next time, something that can be site-specific to your camp or something that highlights your specific camp experience. And then the next step of that is actually taking a parody of maybe a popular song or another type of song that got famous off of TikTok or on the radio or whatever, and changing the lyrics. This is a great activity to do with campers. Specifically, if you're getting ready to do something that's unifying your campers together, like your group or your unit, or maybe even as an all-camp activity. If you're getting ready to do some sort of competition, doing this really brings you guys together. You can add in other elements that unify you guys like maybe a color or the name that your group is called or something like that so just using a parody of a pop song changing it to what you guys want super easy to do now this next part for you is for my musicians or people who have a little bit more musical background experience this is how you can kind of dig deeper into writing your own camp songs for me, myself, and I, I like to keep things very folksy. Pretty much every song that I've ever written has a bit of a folksy tune to it. And that's just where I grew up. That's my heritage. That's where I come from. I grew up listening listening to a lot of folksy, type, folksy style music, a lot of country music, a lot of just very lyrical stuff. So for me, that's my wheelhouse. Figure out for you, what is your wheelhouse? Did you grow up listening to a lot of rap music, a lot of R&B, a lot of country music? If so, use that style into the style of your camp song because that will, you already understand that structure and how that's supposed to sound. So using songs that you already love and kind of mimicking those will definitely help you. I know my musician friends are probably thinking like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go against copyright or whatever. Well, you're benefiting kids and it's not like you're going to be necessarily posting a parody of yourself on YouTube and trying to sell it. So do what's best for kids if you're worried about copyright issues. Anyway, back to my musician friends. Learn your basic chord structures. For those who are playing string instruments, I just recommend sticking with tabature. Um, I hardly ever play outside of a C major scale or chords that fit into the C structure. I just don't see any point of getting outside of that because if you keep it in that chord structure, every other musician or every other beginning musician is going to be able to catch along super easily. Also, the range of singing in C fits very well for kids. So I typically keep that or play in the, play in the key of D 
because both of those are really similar to each other, or at least very close to each other. And so that way other people can play along super easily. Okay. Um, I, speaking of keeping it in C or in the key of D, I try and keep my melody very mid range, nothing that's too high in the melody line, nothing that's too low, unless you're trying to do it to be silly. You know, we always have those one songs where we must sing lower or something like that. Unless you're trying to be silly like that, don't make, don't make like your final campfire song. If you're writing a new final campfire song, something that goes super low or super high. I know that there's those camp songs out there that already are like that. And I know for people who are a part of camp and are not musicians, they struggle to hit those notes. So just save yourself a little bit of trouble now by keeping it in the middle range of your voice. Next, decide upon your theme. Decide upon the subject of your song. Once you decide upon what you're going to be writing your song about, then you can decide other elements like, is it going to be fast or is it going to be slow? What's the feeling of the song? Is it going to be a happy song or is it going to be a more solemn song? Maybe even if you're a faith-based camp, it's a more of a sacred tune or something like that. Um, then you can go ahead and decide the form of the piece. Now, since we are talking about camp songs, I hardly ever vary from AB form or verse, chorus, verse, chorus form, just because that's what's easiest for everybody to remember. So that's pretty much what I stick with. I always try and keep it super simple and not really think too much outside the box. That way other people can sing it and it can continue to be sung for many, many, many years. After you've decided all that, then it's a good time to go ahead and start with the words. Now, I'm not going to lie. Most often I start with the words and then all of those other things come into play. But if you can already have some of those things set up, I typically find if you can get those things set up, like the form, the tempo, the theme, the words typically do write themselves. So when you're writing the words, write it like a poem. Hardly do I ever make the verse more than four lines long and hardly ever do I make it shorter than four lines long. Same with the chorus. Or sometimes the chorus is just one line or two lines. Once again, I keep it super simple. I don't try and work out of my way of making it obnoxious. Once again, I also get the campers input on how the words should rhyme and go. Um, this last camp experience that I had, we were tasked to, to write two songs during my experience. One was an actual singing melody, one was a rap. And I used my campers for both times. They came up with much more catchier rhymes than I could have come up with. So if you can get campers involved, absolutely get your campers involved. Once again, I keep it super simple, sticking to four lines per section of music, always repeating the chorus at least two or three times while you're singing to really drive in what the theme of the song is about. And most songs that I write are usually to that camp specific or to the site specific. Sometimes I do write songs that are universal. So for instance, well, sort of universal, I should say, for instance, I do have one water rap song that I do a lot when I'm traveling at Girl Scout camps because it mentions the Girl Scout camp format quite a bit. But I do have a lot, a lot of site-specific songs that I have done. I have written many songs about my home camps that I've been a part of. I wrote a song in honor of my last camp experience at Camp Robbinswald called Big Doug because of the tree that exists there. So it can be totally possible to just keep it site-specific. Or if you're wanting to do a little bit more of a universal theme, that is totally fine as well. I just find it's a little bit easier sometimes when you keep it to be site-specific. All right, camp kids, those are my tips and tricks on how to write a camp song. If you decide to write your own camp song, tag me in it. 
share it with me. I would love to hear of the things that you guys are coming up with for this upcoming camp season. If you liked this style of podcast, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. We want to keep this Camp Kids community growing by spreading it to others who are also a part of the camp community. Please leave us a rating or review, preferably a five-star rating so that others can help find our podcast. I'll have another podcast episode up for you next week, but remember that this is good night and not goodbye. Test, test, test. Hey Camp Kids, welcome back to the Camp Kids Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Bob, and I'm on a mission to bring together a community of camp people from all around the world. Whether you're currently in your camp experience or it's been a while since you've been at camp, when you're with us, you're at home. Today I'm talking about a heavy subject about dealing with conflict. I'm not going to lie, these tools that I'm going to bring for you are not only helpful in the camp experience, but really universal themes that you can take wherever you go. I am going to shed some light on things that are specific to the camp experience, but I do hope that you take this and figure out how you can apply these concepts into your everyday life. Dealing with conflict is not ideal, but it is going to happen. The younger that we are, the harder that it seems, the more older that we get, the more easier it becomes. So this is really me having a conversation with my 19, 20 year old self in hopes that some of you who are out there that might be in the same situation that might be in the same situation that haven't had a lot of haven't had a lot of experience dealing with conflict will find this useful. So, let's first just put it out all out on the table and say that conflict is going to happen and it's going to happen before you're ready for it. It could even happen in that honeymoon stage of you just getting back to camp in the summer. You are in very close proximity with the other people around you. When you go through the camp experience, you experience the high of the hive the high of the high emotions, which means you're also going to experience the low of the low emotions too. They don't necessarily tell you that when you're getting ready to go into a camp experience that you're going to experience it all. And that is totally okay and a part of the camp experience itself. Camp experiences are very personal. So when things don't go as planned, people tend to take everything very personally, even though it could have been a weather issue or could have been a staffing issue, something that is completely outside of somebody's control. They will take it very personally, which makes motions run high, which makes conflict. Also, when you're in a place like in the camp environment or in the outdoor environment where there's a lot of risk going on, There's a lot of things that could go wrong just because you're in a high-risk environment. So this brings you to places unlike that you would see in the outside world. So when you're thinking of a time in the past time that you've had a conflict, keep those things in your mind. Camp is a breeding ground for conflict. It's going to happen and we need to talk about the tools of dealing with it. So when someone brings a conflict to you, realize that the conflict is actually more about them than it is about you. I'm going to say that again. When someone comes to you with a conflict that has to do with you, it's more about them than it is about you. It's something that either you have participated in or you have done that has gone against their will. Not necessarily something that you have done wrong. Could be, but also more times than likely not, also it couldn't be. Talk through it with them, but try not to gossip. The first thing that you're going to want to do when someone brings up conflict to you is to go off and to go tell another camp friend, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Talk through it with the person who brought it to you first and then give it a cooling off period. Try not to gossip with other people because how you're going to make the situation worse is by going off and telling other people about the conversation that you just had. 
Once again, I realize easier said than done, but sometimes if you hear it more than once, it might actually stick through. Look at it through their perspective, which is the ultimate hardest thing to do when someone is coming at you bringing you conflict. Take take a break from it and then look back at it through their perspective. See if there's something that you're missing. Habit five of the seven habits of highly effective people is seek first to understand than to be understood. A very hard habit to practice. It more deals with the outer success than more of the inner success. However, it's very beneficial when you're dealing with conflict. So those are my tricks on if someone brings conflict to you, how you can deal with it in the moment. Now, let's say that you're experiencing conflict with somebody else. Before you go to your boss, a couple of things that you should keep in mind. You should absolutely bring it up to the person of conflict. Yes, this is facing conflict head on. Yes, this is super uncomfortable. Yes, if you don't have a lot of experience doing this, it is super intimidating. But you owe it to the other person before you jump up to your boss to talk about an issue that is going on. Even if it's a personnel or a policy issue, you owe it to that person to bring it up as the coworker, as their equal, to tell them that what you're seeing is conflict. Now, when you're doing this, you want to... You really want to make sure that you're explaining why. You're bringing it back to that policy or procedure that what they're doing is infringing upon. If they're just doing something that you don't like, think twice about going to them. Because CAM can be done in so many different ways. Oftentimes when I reflect upon my camp experience in my younger years, there was a lot of conflict around things that really truly didn't matter. They were a conflict of preference, not a conflict of policy. So if you're dealing with conflict and you're angry at someone for doing something, realize in that moment, are you angry because it's something that your expectations weren't up to? They didn't meet your expectations in some way? Or are they actually breaking a policy or procedure? If they're breaking a policy or procedure, go back to your handbook, find that policy or procedure, and bring it up to them. Even bring that handbook if you need to. Oftentimes, if it's a policy or procedure thing, you don't need to do this. You just need to bring it up and it will resolve itself. Now, if it is something of personal preference, but it is a safety issue. I have been in those situations before. It's a personal preference, but it's also a safety issue. Not necessarily a specific policy or procedure, but it's what's most safe for the campers. Come up with two or three two or three things that you both can do either separately or together that's going to help solve this problem. My preference is three because the next step after this is to go to your boss if those things aren't done and you've got to have show that you've got a system in place. There are things that you've tried and have not succeeded. So come up with those things together or already bring those things to the table. My advice, already have two things to bring to the table. Let them come up with two or three things on their own as well and implement those things what you've come up with together. After that, then you follow the chain of command. Most camps have a chain of command in place so that you're not bombarding the camp director or the camp administrator with every little conflict. I can tell you from experience as a camp administrator, there were many things that I had dealt with that I wish had gone up the chain of command. With that being said, if there's a unit leader or a counselor head or a head counselor, go to that person first after you've had the conversation with the person of conflict. 
There's no reason to jump ship. I can't tell you how many times I have been frustrated as a teacher, as a camp person, and as a professional just when someone could have come to me and didn't feel comfortable coming to me and went it over my head because it could have been solved with us. And I'll tell you what, it says more about you as a person if you jump that ship and jump that chain of command instead of going to the next person in line. So check your handbook once again. See who that next person up in the chain of command is. If there's a lead person, go to that person first before you go to your boss. Now, the only reason you would break that exception is if that person is in charge themselves. If they are that lead counselor, if they are that person of in charge, that next point person, then obviously you're going to jump and go up to the next boss in the chain of command. So when you're meeting with your boss, make sure to ask to schedule separate time. Don't drop it on them in that moment. Don't say, hey, do you have a second to talk and then dump it on them. Schedule a separate time. The reason I'm asking you to do this is because even though you might have taken time to cool off in that moment, as soon as you bring it up out of your mouth, hey, do you have a second to talk? You've already heightened the elevation. You've already heightened your emotions quite a bit. So I'm saying take time to cool off. Schedule time so that you have an even more of a buffer time to cool off. Because at this point, you've already brought up the conflict to the person of interest. You've already exercised those two or three things that you had brainstormed together that were going to work and now have failed. You're going to need plenty of time to have a level head to have this conversation. Even if your boss persists to have that conversation right then, right now, go ahead and explain to them, I would like more time to cool off from the situation so that I can bring it to you with a level head and get all emotions out of it. Which is my next point to bring up. Be straightforward. Keep emotions out of it. This might take you having to write it down and then scratching out all of the specific spots where you brought your emotions into it instead of writing out the facts. This happens a lot on my side in the educational world when I'm having to write a student up for a behavior that they did that was against our policy, that broke our behavior policy. Oftentimes in those moments, you let the emotions get the better of you and you put things in there that actually were are more persuasive and not actually the facts. So write it out, take out all emotion out of it, and just write down the facts so that you're ready to present that to your boss. Next, tell them the two or three things that you both brainstormed together to try and appease the situation. Now, the only exception to this is if it's a policy procedure. I might say, instead of the brainstorming aspect, I might say, hey, I talked to this person two or three times about breaking this policy, and it's still continuously going on. That would be the only substitution here instead of the brainstorming aspect. Ask for help. Don't just dump the question on them. What administrators and camp directors want to see is that you're taking initiative and that you are doing everything that you possibly can to solve this situation. If you just dump the problem on them, that is something that they could bring up in the mid-season evaluation or an end-of-the-year evaluation saying that you have trouble dealing with conflict. And that's the last thing that you want is for someone to say that you have trouble dealing with it after you've already gone through these steps to try and make it better. You want to already go ahead and ask for help. Or say, I'm ready to brainstorm a solution with you. You don't just want to dump the problem on them and be like, here's the problem. What do we do? Okay. You want to already be proactive in helping solve that problem. And then if possible, sit there with them and brainstorm a solution together. 
Once again, if it's a policy or procedure thing that clearly states you cannot do this, there's not a lot of arguing that goes with that. Sometimes it's just bringing it to their attention. Hey, by the way, so-and-so broke this policy and procedure. I brought it up two or three times. I wanted to let you know. Could be as simple of a conversation of that. Oftentimes, that's not the case. Oftentimes, there's a lot of emotions and personal issues that deal with it, which isn't just a specific policy or procedure. Oftentimes, it's going to take both of you going in with your boss and sitting down and having a conversation, which I understand is super uncomfortable. However, if you've gotten to this point where already you have to talk with your boss, that might be the next step of the solution is you and that person sitting down with your boss having a conversation to be able to brainstorm what's going on. Now, after you've had a conversation with your boss and or the other person of conflict, leave the conversation in the conversation. I'm going to say that again. Leave the conversation in that conversation. Do not speak of it again outside of those doors. Unless the problem persists and your boss is not handling the issue. I have rarely, in fact, I don't even think I have seen at all, where conflict has risen to this level where you have talked with the person of conflict, you have talked with your boss and the other person of conflict to where you need to involve your boss's boss or some executive director at this point in time. If that's the case, oh my goodness, maybe you should consider where you are working at this point in time because I have never had yet to experience that in my camp experience or in my professional experience. So if that's the case, then that's a really big red flag. However, that is less than 1% of each of the conflicts that are probably out there. So with all of that being said, leave the conversation at the door. Do not gossip about it. Do not talk to other people about it. And, And where I see this really happening is people wanting to just let other people know, hey, by the way, we had this conversation, but we dealt with it. That's still gossiping. Leave it at the door. You don't need to have this conversation again unless the conflict arises again. Okay, so those are my tips and tricks with dealing with conflict at camp. As I said, these are universal, these are universal steps that you can apply into everyday life. If there's a specific conflict that you're having trouble dealing with or that you've had trouble dealing with in the past at camp, let me know. I would love to be able to help you through it or to be able to share it with others so that they know what to do if they arise with conflict at camp. All right, camp kids, that was my episode with dealing with conflict at camp. If you liked what you're hearing today, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Let's keep our Camp Kids community growing by spreading it to others who are also a part of the camp community. Please leave us a rating or review, preferably a five-star rating so that others can also find our podcast. I'll have another interview for you next week, but remember that this is good night and not goodbye.